Hello and welcome back to The Mentors. This is Vadim and Sergey, and you're listening to a show where we tell stories of ordinary people that became extraordinary entrepreneurs despite lack of experience, money, or connections. And last week we heard part one. Well, you heard part one. Of oh, we heard our, it too. We listened to heard, all of our we episodes. Do. We do. We listen to all of them, obviously. Not because we like hearing ourselves talk, but because we have to edit or give notes to our editor. That is true. That is true. It is. There is work. We don't just hit record and, and publish to the ether. We want this to be a quality show for you. And if it's not, you let us know. You email us or you message us on the Flick app. But listen. Last week, we heard from Nigel Eccles, founder of FanDuel and now founder of Flick, how he initially got into startups, how he built his co-founding team, how they got products off the ground, how they decided what to build. And in this week's episode, we're going to hear exactly how they came up with and launched FanDuel and started with just a couple users and grew it to thousands and thousands of users spending tens of thousands of dollars on their fantasy betting platform and every single day every single day it's insane and how they grew that operation to a massive scale business and how nigel after 10 15 years in the sports betting industry decided to start all over in a completely new industry building a completely different product please enjoy part two of our conversation with nigel eccles Pretty quickly, we were like, we're on the wrong path. We need to do something different. Interestingly, our board, because we put together a board at that time, you know, board meeting in January was like, it was kind of okay. We missed some of our numbers, but it was okay. By February, it's like, we're missing all of our numbers and it's really not okay. And by March, they're just like, you know, this is a real disaster. And so I just, by the February board meeting, I'm like, I don't want to do this for the next year and a half. I know the path we're on is to failure. And I don't want to go this slow failure. I'd rather, we've got money in the bank. Let's pivot now. Let's do something different now. And that was the genesis of it. Now, when you made that decision around February, March, that uh, this was going to be a failing strategy, uh, did you tell your board about this? Did you tell the investors about this? Or what, what, what did you a, do? That was a really funny story, actually, is what happened there was, um, the first thing we did, actually, we just took the team and we went to South by Southwest. And I think that was in March. Just a really great environment where we can have like, let's have, you know, look at all these cool things that are happening here. What what could we do? And we, um, you know, we identified that we were good, good, really good at building online games. We we're really, really engaging games around prediction. Um, Is that what you guys did? You had games? Yeah, as well, so HubDub was a prediction market. And so we knew we were good at building that. And that was a good product. It just was, it didn't have a business model. You know, there was no way that people were going to pay to play it. And we really started with that. We also knew that our sports category was the the biggest category. And we started sort of put that together and said, well, what if we could do something, prediction game in sports? And then we really kind of stumbled on fantasy sports. Like one of our uh, customer service agents played fantasy sports. None of the co-founders did. In fact, we didn't even follow US sports. So we had really no knowledge of this market. And so it, the first kind of, ideation process of sitting down with this Mark, Mark Williams, and saying, okay, how do you play this game? <laughs> and just getting him to talk and explain the game to us. And I guess some of the things that because we were totally new to it, we were like, well, why does it take four months? That seems insane. Like a game that takes four months, why can't you just play it in a day? And he was like, that you can't play it in a day. And I'm like, well, okay, I want to play now. Why can't I play now? And he's like, because it's the middle of March. And I'm like, I could play basketball. And he's like, no, you have to start the start of the season. And I'm like, this is the dumbest game I've ever had. Like, I need to find 10 friends. I need to start at a particular time. And it takes like four months. 
why don't we just make it like daily? That was like the whole genesis. And so to some extent, our ignorance kind of helped because other people weren't really asking these questions. But the funny story about the board was we come in, we had a bad February and the worst one in March. We come in in April and we're like, you know, numbers are terrible. We're like, but don't worry because <laughs> we've got this totally new product. We've spent ages making the, the, the logo look great. And we just like, I remember the slide was just our logo. For Fangio, yeah, yeah, for Fangio, not Humdub. We're like, forget about that. That's the old product. And so I remember there's the faces around the room. It was actually a presentation to the partnership of the, the venture firm. And they were just like, holy shit. Like, these guys are totally off the reservation. And they said something to me, which I thought was hilarious. They were like, look, everybody's missing their numbers. There's an economic downturn. You guys shouldn't freak out over it. You know, you kind of need to stay the course. And we're like, no, we're, we're doing this new thing. Uh, so, I, and I hear that between the brainstorming session at South by in March yeah. and debuting this to investors in April, yeah. there's this month it, during which you built a lot of conviction about this because you stood yeah. your ground in front of investors. Yeah, yeah. Where did that conviction come from, especially in a market that you didn't really know and understand? Where did I don't it come know. From? I, I think we just, like the more we dug into it, the more we thought that there was something that would work here. And then we, we knew we we could build good games, uh, these type of prediction games. We had looked at a lot of the other stuff in the market and it, it just didn't make sense to us. We were just like, but what if we took this and made it faster and more exciting? That would, you know, and also make it mobile. So they weren't those at the time, those games were not mobile friendly. Like you could not do your draft on your phone. And so we were, we just like built a, a belief that we could do it better. Um, I'm not sure where it came from. Do you remember at this time when you were realizing the other concept was failing and this was an idea that you kind of stumbled upon, were there other ideas that you were exploring as well that, and you were kind of thinking maybe which one I should choose or was this yeah, the main one? There's actually a very, uh, there's a photo of the founders at South by Southwest. We're sitting in the backyard of this house we'd rented and on the back of this like woodshed is all these sticky labels with all these ideas on it. But the resolution's so bad, you can barely see anything. And I'm like, I'm pretty certain. And there was one of those had like this car service. You could like push a button on your phone and a car would turn. <laughs> and there's another one you could rent somebody's house. But I have no idea what was in those other ones. I think we, I think we try to narrow it around we know how to build prediction games. What's like a prediction game, but actually has a business model. I think we try to keep it narrowly within that than, than doing something totally new. Yeah, I think it's good when you're going through this ideation kind of brainstorming exercise because a lot of people don't know where to start. Yeah. What problem to solve even, yeah. what customers they want well, to That's a, We started, like, what do we know? Like, what do we know today? Like, we knew about prediction games. Like, we kind of knew how to build them. We knew how to interact with people. We knew which categories got the most interest. And it was like sports. It was like, clearly it was sports. And so we we did have that knowledge base and we wanted to use that. And so we, instead of just going into a totally new, so we were building on what we'd learned as opposed to doing something totally new. Exactly. You guys, it sounds like we're working out of some constraints mm -hmm. instead of a oh, yeah. complete blue ocean of we can do anything. We can do anything, yeah, yeah. We decided, well, we already created some currency here. Yes, we yeah. already have some domain expertise. Yeah. Let's leverage what we have because we won't have to reinvent the wheel and totally spend right. a bunch of time starting Absolutely from scratch. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. So, uh, got it. So it makes sense now where that conviction came from because it's based on a lot of history mm -hmm. that you had um, built up over the, the, the that past year or two. Now, 
you're getting ready to launch a new product. I'm mm-hmm. sure you're, you're, you have a team, you're burning money. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're running against time. Yeah. So how do you decide what to do next? Because you said you did the launch a little bit differently then. So yes. how much time did you spend building versus testing and how did you accomplish that yeah. launch? So we did, we we built and launched Fangio very differently. Hubdub was built on the idea of a vision that we were right and that this was going to take the world by storm. Fangio We'd learned from that, and we also knew that we didn't know this market and said, okay, we are going to be very disciplined about testing things with customers and testing demand and not building for what we think they want because we have no idea. Like, we literally don't know how this game is played. Like, you've got to understand, we knew nothing. Like, we didn't know what a touchdown was at the start of this process. Like, almost literally, we didn't know what a touchdown was. And so we had to spend all our time with customers saying, like, should it be this or this? Should it be this or this? And so the first product that we launched uh, for Fangio was a spreadsheet. And it was literally like we had all the players and people could like pick players on a spreadsheet. And we advertised it on Craigslist, like come and play this game. And I remember we got some users and they played it and they gave us feedback. I think we paid them to play it. And it, we got really valuable feedback on how the product should work. And we had actually done no coding even for that. So that was the process of let's find the smallest bits and just continually get feedback on what we're doing and really do that from day one. Do you remember approximately how many customers you had used this spreadsheet kind of app? Yeah, it was you- kind of in the tens. Okay. You know, there's very diminishing returns as you start because these are not quantitative tests, these are qualitative tests. And like, if you get a good interview, that interview is invaluable. And the next one is like, is valuable. And then the third one, if you're getting consistency, you're, you know, it's, it's still valuable, gives you some more color. It's really when you're making decisions, putting in front of those users, interviewing them, getting an understanding and iterating. So then when did you start actually coding and what did you do right before launch to prepare? And I'm also to sort of add a little bit more color to that, you know, before you started coding you, out of these tens of users, mm-hmm. there must have been an insight that you either kept hearing over and over again or something that made, you know, a light uh, switch in your head that you're like, okay, this is what we're going to pursue as a for a product launch, right? Yeah. What Do you recall what that was and how that came yeah, about? Yeah, so th- there certainly was one. It was actually post-launch. So when we launched, so in terms of what we did is, the t- you know, team got to work and trying to build the most basic version of this product. And if the most basic version was there was two player, you could play against one other person. Um, you couldn't select. There was no, when you came to the homepage, you put in your lineup and you submitted it. And at game start, we matched you with somebody else randomly. In fact, it was an innovation on our part to make sure we didn't match you with yourself. <laughs> if you had put two lineups in, we were like, okay, that's a, we need to make sure that doesn't happen. But, you know, that was what the product looked like. And one of the things that we changed after we had launched I remember a user emails me and he was like pretty dismissive. He said, look, you've got this all wrong. And he started to explain that we had done it on a, what we call a snake draft. So I pick a player, the other person picks a player. And the way we had done that is you'd get a long list and you just have your kind of your wish list of players and they have their wish list of players and then they go and then you go. And the system kind of mat- builds it in a, what you call a snake draft. And he was like, no, 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 no. You don't want to do it like that. You want to do it as a salary cap. Give every player a price. Tom Brady might be very expensive and some third string running back from Buffalo is very cheap. And then you pick and, and you basically pick under the salary cap. And so I remember he emailed me and he said, you don't know what you're doing. And I was like panning a angry sort of email back on because we were stressed and we were like, we don't want users giving us hassle. And then I, I, like, I remember just like delete that email. And then I just 
then they, I said, send him an email. I said, why don't we talk? And so I get him on the phone and he starts, you know, what I discovered was he'd been playing fantasy sports for 20 years. He'd played every product in the market, not only like Yahoo, ESPN, CBS, but he'd played my fantasy league and, you know, head to head fantasy sports and high stakes leagues and everything. And so he was like a product guru. And so he said, this is how the product should look. It should look like a salary cap. And I remember turning to the team and I said, I got this guy on the phone. It sounds like he knows what he's do- talking about. And he thinks we should do a salary cap. And they're like, well, snake draft's not working. Because like when we launched it, like, you know, we were getting like a user a day, two users a day at best. Like a good day was two, two users. Most days were zero. And he was like, look, if you change to this, I think this would, you know, this, this would really work. And within three weeks, we switched to that and it really worked. And Okay, so it sounds like a key product decision and actually changed your ability to acquire customers. Yes. But, but what was that strategy then when you launch to acquire those customers? Oh, they didn't we come lo- out of nowhere. I'm curious. Yeah, yeah, so at the time we could advertise on Google with PPC. And, you know, actually for the first year, that was one of our biggest source. The biggest problem with PPC is that it's not demand generation. So if people aren't looking for it, there's no demand to get. Um, display ads? Is that uh, what you did? No, display ads never worked. We did search oh, ads okay. work. Oh, okay. Worked when in season, when, you know, start of September, people are looking for fantasy football. It worked. But come December, no one's looking for fantasy football. And so uh, search ads doesn't work. And that's why we had to go into other forms of advertising. But in the early stages, it was really PPC. Like we were paying per click. And it actually, we trained us a lot on how to like explain the product, how to convert users. But we had to later figure out how to do demand generation. Hmm. And so do, do you remember any particular demand generation techniques that you know saw a, a very large blip in acquisition? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So later on, when we figured out it was radio advertising uh, and laterally podcast advertising, actually. Hmm. Um, the reason is uh, podcast and, and a lot of radio advertising has endorsed. It's endorsed by the host. They do like a live read. And we had a product that was all about sports. So we could target sports radio. So we knew that everyone listening to that show was a target user. And we could have the host say, hey, I'm playing in this league. It's awesome. You know, come and play. And so these and so the people listening, they would never have thought of starting a league in December or you know in March or July. Suddenly they knew because if they saw our ads on the internet, they would go, "Oh, like I don't know why that's there." Because no one starts in you know in March or no one starts in December, no one starts in July. What a radio or a podcast ad would do is like, "No, you can play today." This is real. It's very authentic, and so it was really great at demand generation. So what was a good, you know, at that point you had launched, you'd been working on it for a year. Mm -hmm. How many users did you have at that point? Oh, so we launched uh, FanDuel in 2009. By summer of uh, 2011, I think we're probably in the, you know, thousands of daily active paid users, that kind of number, low thousands. Paid meaning they're placing- They're using real money. Mm -hmm. Got it. Okay. And how did you guys make money from that? Uh, So we took about a 10% commission every game. Okay, got it. Very cool. And so you got into radio advertising. Obviously, there's so much to dig into this story, but we do want to get to mm-hmm. Flick. So if maybe we can kind of fast forward a little yeah. bit, uh, how do you go from you know a couple thousand daily active users mm-hmm. to building a billion dollar company? What do you think happened in between there? Yeah, <laughs> the short version. The short version of that. If you can. So I think two things. I think by 2011 we had a really great product. Uh, people loved the game, and that was one of the things we had now a platform that. People love the product. And I used to like to say that the difference between a fantasy sports player 
on Fangil and one not on Fangil was the ones on Fangil had heard of Fangil because all of the people who were on Fangil loved it and they, they, they kept coming back and they told all their friends about it. We needed to find a way to go from that maybe 10,000 people who had heard of Fangio and were playing it to the 25 million people who were playing fantasy sports elsewhere. And so that wasn't a product problem. That was a marketing product. We, we had fixed product. We had the product. We had product market fit. And you, those users loved it. And so what the period from 2011, really, to 2015 was all about how do we scale our marketing? Because customers were very valuable. Our customers were probably worth us lifetime value of about $500. And so we could spend a lot of money to acquire those. And so, but to do that, what we needed is a, a marketing team who are incredibly disciplined about, I'm going to spend money here and not here. And I'm going to track every one of those channels to see what's our cost per acquisition of one of those users. And so it was about building that marketing team and it was building that marketing spend, but it was really about building the team, the engine. And this was a team that if you follow it, we increased our spend three to five X every year for five years, and they maintained a 50 to $70 cost per acquisition. That's spend going from a couple hundred thousand up to several hundred million. It's like phenomenal over a five-year period. Like this, this thing is just like going up like a rocket ship. But every year that team delivered pretty much the same cost per acquisition. And it was really phenomenal to see how they could, you know, basically start off on PPC, then do radio, you know, then do print, then do uh, podcast, then do television, social, influencer, all of these different channels to the same effective number at the end, which is a cost per acquisition. And it sounds like, I mean, you guys raised a lot of money over yeah, that period of time. 450 so, million. So were you spending most of your time from fundraising or did it come in big chunks? Uh, a lot of the time, yes. Yeah. So when you raise that amount of money, it's, I probably say, you know, third, half of my time, um, maybe about a third of my time is all the mechanics of fundraising, you know, building relationships, raising, managing boards. It's incredibly involved. I mean, it sounds like you guys were one of the market leaders and you were growing users mm -hmm. and you had engaged users. So yeah. big market. So I understand why you were able to raise that money. And of course, there's a whole other story to get into and in, in sort of what happened with that business and the consolidation in the space yes. and yeah. all of that, which which unfortunately we won't have time to get into maybe another day. Yes. But then you just told us in the pre-interview when we were chatting a little bit that in between FanDuel and that acquisition and you starting Flick, it was really a very short period of time. You, yes. you didn't really take yeah. much of a break at all. And so you had already been, this wasn't your first rodeo, you had already been through the process of launching companies. Mm -hmm. um, how did the idea for Flick come about and how did you decide what you were going to build next and i know that you've sort of adjusted since yeah. that initial yeah. idea yeah so what was your process of okay this is what i'm going to work on next yeah like i've always been someone who's always sort of had ideas and sort of thought oh would that be a cool business or you know recognize that i'm not going to execute on many of them or really maybe any of them apart from a small number and i'm always intrigued in businesses i help lots of founders i'm always intrigued what they're doing and with fanjul I was really fascinated about the community we had built, both on the product. Like we'd taken this niche activity, which is fantasy sports, and we'd normalized people playing for tens of thousands of dollars a day. And the way we normalized it is that they, everyone they knew did the same because they built a community with each other 
on the side. And we had built that. And so I find that really fascinating. I also kind of realized I'm not a sports fan. This is probably not my, you know, this may be part of my legacy, but it's probably not the thing that I want to do for the next sort of 20, 30 years. There's probably other things that I want to do. And so I was really fascinated by the community element. Um, what I did then is when I left, I really was sort of thinking about this idea, how do we build community? How do we, and then sort of monetize communities? And I also was like, well, who do I do this with? And I knew I needed someone who was like an amazing product person. I also knew I needed somebody who had like just a really great sense of design and visual interface because essentially what we're doing is like a social media product. And so the competition there is phenomenal. That's when I basically connected my co-founder of Fangio, was Rob, and he was our head of design, co-founder, you know, ran parts of the engineering team. And so I was like, okay, Rob, why don't we do this together? Um, I actually think this is something that you'd love to do. And so we very quickly figured out, yeah, let's do this. And we went straight into it. When you went from you know, going to meetups, meeting your team, mm -hmm. building a company, pivoting, growing it to hundreds of millions of dollars and obviously doing very different work, right? Where you're managing a big team, you're mm -hmm. pitching to investors all the time and then having to do that all over again. Yeah. Was that daunting at all? It was totally daunting. I, it really surprised me. Like I was like, you know, with Fans, I'd raise over 450 million. And I remember meeting one of my neighbors who's an angel investor and I remember him going, you know, I'd, I'd write you like a hundred thousand dollar check, and I was like, "Really?" I was like, <laughs> "I was like a kid again." I was like, "Wow!" You know, because I don't have anything. I really felt really daunted because we'd built all this infrastructure with Fangio. I going back to the start was yeah, it was kind of terrifying. Like I just I remember like speeding a few other people who were entrepreneurs I do, and they were like, "Oh, I'd write you fifty thousand check," and I'm like wow, like I could do this. So I did not at all take it for granted that I would just go out and, you know, somebody would write me, you know, multi-million dollar checks. Yeah, well, I think when you have a track record of growing a business, and actually this happens at the university all the time where founders come to us and they're like, well, you know, I mean, I, I read about this other person on TechCrunch that raised in an idea. Mm -hmm. Why can't I start pitching yeah, this? Yeah. This is a brilliant idea. It's like, yeah. well, did you look at the history? You know, that person probably has experience bringing yeah. something to market in a yeah. massive way where the yeah. risk is much lower. Yeah. So I'm not surprised that you had people that were will willing it, it to- It is funny though. Like one, one of the investors who invested in me, he said, you know, You've got a track record that, you know, means that there's a fairly high probability that your next startup is a total failure. <laughs> it's like a smoking big crater because he said you're going to have no problem raising money. But in consumer, it's very hard to get product market fit. And he said, so you're going to raise a ton of money. And then you're, you know, like there's a real danger. You don't get that. And so you like, you know, and so that's something I've always been very conscious of that just because it's been easy for us to raise money that it doesn't make the hard thing, which is product market fit, any easier. Um, it, that's just, that remains very difficult. So, and sorry, by the way, did you end up moving that meeting to five? Or? That's fine. I, I told them I'm going to be late. Okay, great. And then, so you've been working on Flick for how many years now? Uh, well, no, so Flick, uh, we started in around January or February of last year. Uh, so it's about a year, year and a half. Got it. So a year and a half. So... Let's talk about that process. You mm -hmm. you have an idea for a, a way to build community. Yeah. How did you figure out who to target first, and yeah, and sort of what's been the iterative process there? Yeah. So you know we had a we had a what you would call a pivot within Fleck within the first six months because we had this strong hypothesis about building community, and we looked at the market and we said, you know, I think esports is the market for it. Esports is incredibly hot right now. We sort of felt that there wasn't great tools for people to build community, particularly on mobile. And so this was a mobile communities. And so we really focused on that for the first 
uh, really six months, really until last summer. And we launched it and we had a product where people could actually share their mobile phone screen with a friend and then they could chat with their friends. And, and we really thought it was going to be a gaming product where people like on Twitch, they could watch each other play and they could chat to each other and um, built a really nice product, but it just didn't have much user traction. And what we found was that people played mobile games didn't really treat them that seriously. They're kind of throwaway. We also found that a lot of the tools in the mobile space are really good. Like Twitch is a phenomenal product. Discord is a really good product. And so we were like, hmm, organic demand to watch and interact with other people playing mobile games wasn't really that strong. And also, even then, there are other products around the space like Twitch and Discord that actually do a lot of this stuff pretty well. And so we sort of came to the conclusion that this wasn't a great space for us, even though our central idea of building community on mobile, we still felt really good about that. So how did you go about choosing the next vertical you were going to test? Yeah, so then we went into the, you know, the pivot, <laughs> which is this ugly, painful process. You know, we did a lot of kind of kicking around. We looked at lots of different products. We like talked about different markets. We talked to a lot of customers. Um, interesting, I remember one gamer sent us, he was on Discord. He said, you know, the Discord's amazing. And they love Discord. Gamers generally love Discord. And he was like, one thing that really frustrating to me is that there's no girls on it. Like, this is a, this is a guy platform, gamers. And we were starting to go, well, what would be a girl-friendly Discord platform. Like, what would that look like? And we spent a lot, and we were joking, this is Miscord. But we kind of sort of played around with this idea. And that's when we really hit on podcasts. We started to kind of realize that here was a market that had, in the US, 150 million people last year listened to a podcast. I think in the last, our weekly listeners, is about 60 million. And we said, wow, this is interesting. This is a really big market of, or really, big market of people, but they actually have no community platform. So your listeners today, and they listen to this, and they, oh, it's great. I'd love to chat to some other people who listen to that show. Where do they go, right? And there isn't really that opportunity. And we're chatting to a lot of podcast listeners. They saw this similar issue. It's like, I love this show. You know, listening to that show is like one of the best days of the time of the week. I'd love to be able to connect more with even the hosts or the other listeners. And so we said, okay, we're right. There is an opportunity for like a mobile community but the esports isn't the right place. It's actually podcasts is the right place to focus. That's very interesting. And, and so that brings us to how we got introduced actually two ways in the last couple of weeks. Yes. This gentleman that we know from Boston, um, Jeremy, introduced me to you because mm -hmm. he comes from the sports uh, betting area as well. He had a startup that, um, did you guys buy that startup? Or was it uh, Betfair? Well, Betfair bought it and then yeah. Betfair bought Fangio as well. So okay, so Betfair sister bought, company got it, bought his company. So you guys are in the same space. He knew that Vadim and I have a podcast. And then one of your employees mm -hmm. or partners reached out to me because I run a podcast meetup here in New yeah. York, and I guess one of your acquisition strategy is uh, sponsoring groups like that yeah. where you can get in front of yeah, that's right. a bunch of podcasts. So let's talk about that. You guys decided to build this community development tool, which is essentially a chat app that can mm -hmm. be leveraged by podcasts, podcasters and people that consume podcasts. So what are some of those ways that you're now that you've entered this market that mm -hmm. you're trying to acquire customers, both paid and, and unpaid? Yeah. So... One of the things that we've discovered is a really good development of this product, which is very different from Fangio, was um, our hub. To, so Fangio was not viral. Like it had good word of mouth. You know, somebody was a player, they loved it, but it didn't grow virally. It wasn't like every user that came in brought in other users. What we find though with podcasters is, is definitely does have a viral curve because 
when someone you know gets on the platform and starts promoting their flick group to their listeners within their listener base might it be 10,000 it might be 100,000 it might be a million there are other podcasters and they're like this is really cool I want this for my platform and so we find that it is quite naturally viral at the same time we do want to kickstart that and so we're doing a lot of the sort of classic stuff like we're going to podcast conferences or podcast movement is next month we'll see you there we'll see you there <laughs> so you know and it's actually still quite a small community and that people sort of know each other um, and so we've done a lot of networking in the community that we kind of connect one podcaster and they're like oh you should speak to these other five people so it's a lot of kind of really old school just getting out there, talking to people, networking. We've not really done much beyond that and the viral effect of the product. So what's then, now that you're pursuing this strategy, what's your measure of whether this is working or not now? Yeah, so one of our so one of our measures is just like DAUs, the daily other, active users, sorry, right. daily active users. Another one, and that's still very small because it's very early. But another really important one is the number of podcasts that we sign up a week. That's heading about forty to fifty, and so it's mostly all through direct outreach and networking that you're doing. It's that's mostly organic, actually. Yeah. We're really not doing that much for those ones. We think we can really ramp that as we kind of reach out, but that'll be our biggest one. So our biggest metrics are going to be number of podcasts that start and then the number that really activate because we've discovered there's a big difference between creating a group which is really easy and then linking it in with your podcast so that you can actually you know you would say hey go to my show notes and click on the flick link to get it to my group or you might say use the code uh, mentors and you go to the flick app and enter that and you'll get the group doing that part we found is actually harder than actually creating a group so those are our two main metrics which is one number of podcasts signing up and then secondly what percentage of them are activating and so we know that if both of those numbers are good, then we are going to have a very nice viral growth curve. Mm. And what's the revenue opportunity there that you're seeing? Yeah, so the revenue opportunity is is actually becoming quite apparent. And when we started, it wasn't that clear. Is What we're seeing with podcasters is a lot of them, um, certainly any podcaster below 50 to 100,000 downloads a week, really struggles on advertising. But they may have a very engaged listenership who want to contribute or want to kind of get extra content. And so we're working with them on building like a premium model. So you could say, hey, you know, you can, you know, you can listen to our podcast for free. But if, you know, you pay $5 a month, you can join our community. You get weekly or monthly Ask Me Anything with the hosts. Uh, you get this exclusive content and you get, you know, recognized by the community as a contributor to this podcast. And so that model we're finding the podcasters are really excited about because it has helps them in the early stages where they're not going to get advertising revenues, create something of value. And listeners are really engaged because they're like, they know if they don't help support it, it maybe it'll not stick around. And by the way, uh, we are starting to test the Flick groups and the chat. So if anybody that's here that's listening that wants to talk about this episode, just go to flick.group slash the mentors, flick.group slash the mentors. Uh, help Sorry, us try it out. Clarify, is that group or groups? Uh, group, just group singular. Yeah. And uh, play around with it, start talking. Let's see if we can get this group going and help uh, Nigel test it out and make sure that we're getting value out of it, but also that they keep on improving it. Um, but you mentioned that you know you guys are getting 40, 50 podcasts or so per week right mm -hmm. now organically. 
how are they finding out about how? Why I think are they they're joining? mostly finding yeah. from other podcasts. Got That's it. what we're seeing. They're like, okay. oh, I was on this podcast. I heard it been, you know, them creating their group, and so then I checked out that group, and I thought that'd be really cool. I'd like to have that in our podcast. And you're seeing, I'm curious, like especially with a smaller podcast where it's in the thousands uh, mm-hmm. weekly. You're seeing engagement and actually people communicating. Oh, the engagement's these, phenomenal. The engagement is like it's it is. Um, uh, I we actually had a Instagram influencer on it, and uh, she's really big on Instagram and YouTube. And she said, "I've never seen the level of engagement because." One of the things you find with social media is there's a very low participation rate because people just kind of scroll. They do this like a vertical scroll. And they're like, oh, that's pretty. Oh, that's funny. You know, and they scroll, but they don't engage. What Flick is, it's much more like a WhatsApp. It is a chat app. And so, yeah, you can sit and watch other people chat, but you really want to jump in. And it's not that forbidding. It's not that scary, like commenting. Instagram, you've seen teenagers do Instagram pictures, right? They spend like half an hour like getting the perfect picture, the perfect filter. It's chat. You can say one word. You can like throw in an emoji. And so what we find, so with social media, typically they'll say like maybe if you get 5 to 10% of people to engage, like that's really good. We will see well over half of the people who are on the platform will actually actively engage. And so it's it's a very engaging platform where everyone feels much easier to be part of the conversation. And how are you actually getting out of those 40, 50 that are joining per week? How are you actually getting some of them to start using it? Because so many times it's the biggest barrier. You sign up for something yeah, yeah. and you just and don't, don't use it. How yeah, do so that? we're really doing that on a direct outreach basis. Our team's just kind of reaching out. And we're Again, like where do we focus our development effort? A lot of it is just improving that conversion. So, for example, we've discovered when you create a group on Flick, you get this really nice group, and then a lot of people are like, oh, that's great. I don't know what to do next. And so what we need to do is actually make the next step of having you created the group is like, now this is what you do to you know, invite people. And it's in there. You know, if you actually click this button at the top, which says add people, you can find a link. But... People don't know to click there. And so what we need to do is bring that front and center. So you're not done until you've invited people. Got it. And right now you're actually just telling people over email that signed up, hey, do this and just Yes, yeah. So we're are reaching out and say, let's jump on the phone and we can, you know, we can help you get this set up. Let's get in the show notes. That's a really great place so that people can just click in the show notes and there enter the group. A recurring theme for me, Nigel, with a different companies that you started and the products that you've tried, and even now as you uh, went back into the startup game and essentially started all over, is a willingness and an understanding that the most important thing is for you to really deeply understand the customer and spend mm-hmm. as much time with them as possible. Yeah. And you're doing that right now with the direct outreach to podcasters and making sure that you're providing value to them and their mm-hmm. communities. And you did that with FanDuel and you did it yeah. uh, with HubDub before that. And that's something that we really encourage for anyone that's listening to this right now. You know, it's not always obvious. You may have an insight into a market of what might work and you may, that may carry you a long way to give you the energy to actually build something and release something, put it in the market. But until you do that painstaking work of directly communicating with the customers and iterating and iterating and iterating until it works for them, you're not going to get that product market fit. And you guys had that discipline. And of course, Mm -hmm. you had a very talented product team that could spin up things very quickly mm-hmm. as well. And so I think that's part of the reason why you continue to be successful in releasing products. Well, thank you. Yeah, like it's an interesting one. I actually, I find this all the time. Um, it's very hard for to listen to somebody to tell your baby's ugly, right? And that's essentially what you're having to listen to. And you work so hard on something 
and those conversations are sometimes really tough. Like some people can be pretty brutal, but I often get a sense when we're in the office and we're like making decisions or discussing stuff. And I get a sense that we're, we're not asking customers about this. And you start to, you start to build a sense of feeling uncomfortable and like, Ooh, you know, we haven't asked, like we haven't really engaged customers on this. And here's us three people sitting around the room thinking we know the answer. And often you're like, okay, we're going to have to go and test this. Like, um, and it's just like a sense. And and I also like you build a sixth sense of when you get excited about something, you're like, oh, bad sign. <laughs> you know, you get really excited about this feature. And it's like, it goes out and they're like, yeah, like, you know, you just know they're not excited about it. So just, you know, getting out of the room and also have building a sense of, um, when you started to get visionary about something or really have the strong view on something that you don't, you've not really tested with customers, that's a real warning sign that you need to be out there talking to them, testing it with them. Great. Words of wisdom. Nigel Eccles, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, we're excited to use the Flick tool and see where you go from here. That's great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Excellent. That's brilliant. Thank you.